So what I'm going to talk to you primarily about today is a little bit about what's inspired me and what informs my thinking about working on open smart cities and where does the thinking come from and how did we get to this point of developing this concept and this report at this time. It's also, I'll go a little bit into what critical data studies is. That's the domain that I spend my time in. Uh, it's a domain that I'm considered to be one of the founders of, uh, along with Rob Kitchen and Thatcher and Dalton and others around the world. But generally, oddly, a bunch of geographers started developing critical data studies and then we all found ourselves um, mostly located in communication and media studies department. And that's that's my story. So I, I come from old school geography and geomatics and GIS and spatial data infrastructures, but I live uh, and I work uh, in critical data studies at Carleton University in the School of Journalism and Communication. So this is what we're going to go over today. You're going to see me go through the slides, the slides fast. I only use them really for to help me along so that I don't forget important stuff, but I'll put them online for you. So you'll have them online and you'll also have the video. So I'll make sure that you have the URL to the slide share. Or if you want the whole deck, drop me an email and I'll send you the whole deck. Uh, it's just hard to send it on regular email, so it has to go through, through Gmail just because it's a big slide. So I'm happy to show them because they're under a Creative Commons license. Okay? So technological citizenship is something that always informs my work and informs a lot of my actions. Technological citizenship is a concept that comes from a philosopher of science called Andrew Feinberg out uh, at Simon Fraser University. And it's this idea that uh, we live in a technological society. And if we're going to live in a technological society, then technology, in many respects, is, should also be part of technopolitics. It should not just be operations on the side of things. We should be discussing technological politics. Now, when we talk about smart cities, smart cities have become political in the context of Toronto because of Sidewalk Lab, but they're generally by city public officials. They're not, it's not even part of the urban plan. It's something that's on the side. It's in the IT subcommittee, and the chief technology officer is generally who runs these things. So it doesn't become a political discussion. And as I think we're beginning to learn, that it probably should be part of a technological discussion. What Andrew Feinberg would say is, is if you have agency as an individual, you can take, we all have agency as citizens and residents of the city of Toronto or wherever we live and reside, and we have the capacity to act, so we have some technological knowledge, and I would argue that people who have technological knowledge, who people who have open data knowledge or statistical knowledge or sensor knowledge or computer science and software knowledge or platform knowledge should, would have the capacity to act and to engage in this space and then that means we would also have the knowledge to actually be able to do so in a useful way. So Andrew Feinberg would say that in a technological society, if we possess these characteristics, and if technology is considered as political, then therefore we should be engaged as technological citizens. So even though I'm pre-tenure, I still don't have tenure, and honestly, if you don't have tenure as a professor, going to speak to industry associations doesn't help you. Right? So the tenure system actually goes against me in many respects in being a technological citizen because I'm not that work is not valued. The community work is not valued uh, as much as a, a sole author peer review journal article is. But I still believe, irrespective of whether it helps me with tenure or not, that doing that kind of work is very important because I like speaking with the people who actually do the things. So I believe in scholarship that actually informs public space and scholarship that actually helps organizations, whether they be an NGO, a public official in the city, someone at the province, or someone at the federal government, I believe that this is my social responsibility in a publicly supported institution to share the knowledge that I have the privilege to be able to gather and work with students to gather that knowledge. But it's also very well, I situate myself often in thinking about data colonialism. The idea of data colonialism is, is that our spaces, we are generally being dispossessed of our personal and individual data, that our data, particularly in a smart city context, is privatized. It doesn't necessarily belong to the city. It, uh, in the case of sidewalk labs, for instance, 
You know, the jury is out at the moment, but it looks like it'll probably be Sidewalk Labs that's going to be the ownership of the data, or the various vendors might own the data. The data might not be public data because it is generated and collected by a private sector entity. And then there's the commodification of our data. Our data get bought and sold to data brokers, to insurance companies, or to tie into different marketing type of entities. And there's also just, if we think of the idea of, of data are colonized in our life worlds. And if you think of the context of smart city data or smart building data, that is absolutely the case. Both private and public state, public spaces are becoming datafied, and they're becoming datafied in such a way that we don't have sovereignty over the data that are being produced about us as individuals and about us as a collective of people who are walking through public space, for instance. So it's also this idea of, of old school colonialism, which is still alive and well today, because we see it still in, in indigenous communities, particularly we're gonna see it in the north a bit more as the ice melts, but in the context of colonialism, it also means we're in the, you know, this frontier mentality of the wild, wild west where all the vendors and all the sensors and all the devices and all the companies are reoccupying public space and colonizing our life worlds with the collection of data. And it's this idea that if you are a technological citizen, then maybe this is something we ought to consider as a way of thinking. And if we feel that our life worlds are being uh, colonized and our data are being colonized, then we should behave as technological citizens and maybe uh, intermediate and redirect some of that traffic towards something that's more in the public good and that's more beneficial for us. Now, Darren Barney, on the other hand, would talk about doing citizenship in a technological society. Very similar to what Andrew Fingbird is talking about, but it's this idea that you know, technology is the means for citizenship. So if we think of you know, operations in a city, it's you know, uh, managing the water infrastructure, managing the electrical infrastructure to some extent, managing uh, transit and traffic. In many respects, it, since infrastructure is kind of the underlying part of any civilization, in a way, all of the data that are being collected in a smart city context is supposed to make that better and more efficient and, and more interesting and hopefully improving our lives, at least that's what we're sold, or at least more sustainable is often what is, what is suggested with smart cities. If that's the case, then the technology is kind of the means of that citizenship from an infrastructural perspective. It's also about looking at technology as an object. So the, the objects that are going to be embedded in our, in, our, in our environment are also inherently political. And it should also be a place for, techno, for political judgment. Do we want those technologies? Do we want data to be collected in that way? How do we want these technologies to look? How do we want them to be deployed? And when do we get to participate in the decision making as to whether or not we want those deployed in our public space and whether or not we want our public dollars invested in something that may not we may not even own as residents and citizens or the city may not own it, it may not be a public good. So then what happens when public dollars goes into something that seems like a public good, but at the end of the day is not something that's necessarily mutually beneficial for us. And so he would say, again, much like Feinberg would say that you need to be involved in technological politics and you need to do technological citizenship and be engaged so that we can at least steer the course of these technologies if we're not particularly happy with the direction that they're taking. Now in my work over the many years, you know, the, the discourse, if you will, or, or the, the narrative within which I situate an open smart city didn't just appear overnight. It comes from the open access movement, which was open access to journals, for instance, or freedom of information, which is a very, very old concept that goes back 1700s, if I'm not mistaken. Open source is part of it, certainly in the context of smart cities. Open data comes a little bit later. It comes into the discourse and the narrative of open science. In fact, it's the scientific communities that have been doing Internet of Things activities for much longer than everybody else. Just think of seismic activity. You measure seismic activity globally in a massive network, or as Paul Edwards would call it, a vast machine 
uh, that actually ma monitors seismic activity with devices and sensors and they're interconnected to give us warnings so that we at least know if a tsunami is coming and so on. If you think of buoys in the ocean, for instance, it's the same thing. Or you just think temperature gauges and precipitation gauges around the world. That's also part of the Internet of Things. Science has been involved in that space for a long time, and there's a lot of open science that governs that space. But also firmware and the right to repair is part of what does, informs what I do. New discussions on open platforms. You've had some discussions on artificial intelligence. So open AI would be a part of that conversation, but also open specifications, open standards, and open architecture, as well as, you know, I put it here at the bottom because in fact this is a latecomer to the game, but open government, right? This stuff precedes open government by, in some cases up here, hundreds of years, or at least open data by about 10 years. And so it's in, it falls well within the discursive space and the communities of actors that are very active in this space. So it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes as a, you know, you can almost look at this as a timeline and you can put open smart cities here as an extension and as part of this broader conversation. Even though those involved in these spaces are not necessarily having an open smart city conversation. Because the open source people are here, and the open data people are over here, and the open government people are over here, sometimes intersect with the open data people, but not necessarily. In other words, there's different communities of practice, or what I call epistemic groups, different communities of practice, who have a different focal point where they, where they exert their time and their activities and their intellectual capacity, or if you will, in the openness side, their technological citizenship. And so in a way, you know, if I look at it, if I consider this to be a timeline, you know, we've got, we had open data, it was primarily in the sciences, then we moved to administrative data when it came to open data in about 2005 with NGOs. In 2015, 14 or so, we start thinking of open data and crowdsourcing together. You know, it, it didn't happen right here because we didn't think of crowdsourcing because it was just the early days of, of Google, for instance, so we weren't doing that much crowdsourcing, but citizen science and crowdsourcing really takes off at least in intersecting with open data. We start thinking of local and traditional knowledge and data, uh, even though that local knowledge and the traditional knowledge in terms of indigenous peoples have been thought about for a very long time, but in a digital realm, we start thinking about it here. But then it sort of stopped here in 2015. It kept going with open data and open government, but it didn't move into here. It didn't move into operational data and infrastructural data and sensor data and social media data, which means that many of the actors that are in this space are a very different group of actors. And so suddenly, it's almost as if we have to start the whole cycle over again and start having a conversation about the Internet of Things. We need to have a conversation about precision agriculture and autonomous cars and algorithms and the sharing economy or predictive policing or drones and digital labor and so on. So it's a brand, it's a new kind of conversation and it's a new kinds of communities that we need to start bringing to the table to start having a conversation about open smart cities and to start talking about technological politics as it relates to these things. Now what's also very interesting is Traditionally, the open data folks were not really involved in data politics. For example, what I mean by data politics, when the census was canceled, it was not the open data people that advocated to save the, the census. It was researchers, it was librarians, it was scientists, it was marketing associations, it was big city mayors, but not the open data people. Open data people advocate for opening data within a very, very narrow spectrum, but they don't think generally more broadly about politics and policy in a context where we need to have these much broader conversations. And arguably, civic tech is very similar. And in a way, when, we, when it comes to smart cities, we need civic tech people, we need these people to be working with us, and we need the civic tech people to connect back with researchers and to start connecting back with open data people, because really, it's the two together that, will, that have at least the capacity and some of the knowledge in, in to be able to act in a technological society and in the context where we can do some really important advocacy work, as well as a whole bunch of NGOs that might be thinking of human rights or data justice and those types of issues. 
In the context of critical data studies, which is where I spend my time, we think of data as more than the unique arrangement of objective and politically neutral facts. We don't believe there's such a thing as raw data. We also don't believe that there's such a thing as objective data because everything is socially constructed. We believe, uh, generally speaking, in the social construction of knowledge and categories. And if that's the case, then there's always a lens and there's always a focus and there's always a bias. It may follow a scientific model, and that's okay, but it doesn't mean that it's not uh, a socially constructed model in and of itself. We also understand that data don't exist independently of ideas, techniques, and technologies. And this is the interesting part for us when it comes to open smart cities, is we, can't, we can no longer separate the data and the technologies. And in fact, you can't separate the sensor, the data, the sensor, the app, and the platform and governing more broadly because those things are interconnected. They're almost, they're almost uniquely inseparable. You can't separate it from the cloud and you can't separate it from the underlying infrastructure that's gonna operate all of these things. It's also the systems, whether it be operational systems in an IT department or MIT, or whether it be a political system or whether it be the institution of government, people and the context. So an open smart city in Toronto is not gonna be the same in Montreal and it's not gonna be the same in Helsinki, they'll be different. Different politics, different context, different people, different language, different governing structures, different laws that are going to govern these kinds of spaces. So in, in critical data studies thinking, this is a kind of thinking that we normally embody and that we have when we're looking at what I call data spaces. Now generally speaking, when we talk about data, we're here at the top of the, uh, the iceberg, and even in to many respects the open data people, they primarily think of data technically. What's the format? What's the form? Is it machine readable? Is it, yes, open takes us into here a little bit and here, but it still tends to be a very technical discussion. And even when you go look at the indicators of assessing openness, it's primarily technical. It doesn't talk about the quality of data, for instance. It'll talk about the qualities of the data set, but not quality or the quality of the features that are being captured. And so the critical data studies perspective, or as Rob Kitchen would put it, he would concept, we suggest that we should conceptualize data not only technically but ethically in the political economy, who's buying, who's selling, who's owning, who's governing, spatial and temporally. So for instance, data that are collected in 1922 about climate are very different than the data we collect today simply because the sensors are different, the devices are different, and how we collect is different. Or if we just think uh, Toronto amalgamated, so if we look at Toronto in 1985, it's not the same geographic unit spatially as Toronto is today. So you can't just go back in time without thinking of the spatial and temporal dimensions. And of course, philosophically and ontologically, what is informing the, the framework within which data are made. And I add here technological citizenship, and I consider myself as a very engaged scholar. So I consider, I consider data activism and technological activism as very important as part of informing my work and I think should be added to some of the aspects with regards to how we frame data and how we think about data. Just go for that. Now the theoretical framework, right? What's a you know, theoretical framework for me, the one that I like to use is assemblage theory. I use assemblage theory as a way to say, well, there's no such thing as just a number without a science or without some kind of legislation or without a particular community around the particular data set to make it a fact or money and the circulation of finance to pay for those things. There's no data without buying, selling. Even free data are not free data because it takes a whole machinery of an institution to keep those data. There is always a license or a terms of use. I can't think of data outside of an organization or an institution, right? Statistics Canada will always have a particular kind of cachet because it's a very reputable institution, for instance. And it's very different than, say, data from the Fraser Institute, right? They're very different kinds of institutions, very different organizations, very different practices. The subjectivities of the community, so the civic tech people look at technology, the open data people look at data, they have a very different way of looking at that information. The marketplace and places, because there's no, there are no two places that are the same. 
When I go look at data or when I go look at a technology space, I take this context into consideration. When I look at the number or I look at the technology. In the context of the material things, because you still need to know the material things as well that are tied with the data or with the technology. And then the material things, you have codes and software and algorithms and flow lines and databases and infrastructure and cloud computing and fiber optic cable and sensors and batteries, for instance, are very important when it comes to the Internet of Things, as well as being able to transmit information between devices. Even unique identifiers are a very important technology in this space. I think of the context, but I also think of the material reality of those particular technologies. And there's these new forms of critical thinking that are starting to show up in universities around the world. And in my case, this is, this is the work that I spend time, this is where I spend my time. But surveillance studies, and many of you might be familiar with David Lyons and David Murakami Woods, and they have been very, very much involved in surveillance, and it's very close to critical data studies. Algorithm studies, there's already been some lectures in that space critical code studies and software studies, and platform studies. And in a way, you know, there are divisions between these because we look at things slightly differently and we certainly refer to different types of literature, but there's a lot of overlap between and among what it is that we do. I also mentioned earlier, I think of that the social, we have the city, it could be Ottawa, it could be Toronto, it could be any city in the world. We translate that ditty, that city, feel like I should do a little dance or something. Or we, tra we translate the city into code and data. So it becomes an abstraction, it becomes a representation, it becomes an indicator, it becomes a model, it becomes a map. And then we take that translation of the software, of the data, because that's now what's in our mental model informing how we think about the world, and then it goes and reshapes the city or the people or the population. And there's this circular dynamic interaction between what happens every day in the changing nature of the city, the cranes that I saw today won't be there in a year. There'll be different cranes in different places. It'll be translated into code. The map might inform something of what transit is. Transit might change as a result of that new map. A new road comes in. A new road is a new data set. It goes onto the new map and so on. Right? So it's this kind of dynamic interaction of this continuous changing uh, framework in terms of the social shaping way of thinking. So this open smart city stuff, you know, finally we start talking about the stuff, the reason why I'm here talking to you today. It's the result of a really exciting project that was funded by the GeoConnections program. The GeoConnections program is part of Natural Resources Canada, the federal government. As a geographer, I know them well particularly because they're the ones who deliver the spatial data infrastructure. So how you get geospatial data over the web is as a result of these guys. So your, your GPS, the satellite imagery that's underneath Google Map, that comes from GeoConnections and it comes from Natural Resources Canada. So Google is using Canadian satellite data, satellite remote sensing data to inform their background information. So that's a whole massive infrastructure of data that is moving around that is funded and supported by Geo the GeoConnections program. We had a team over at Open North. Open North is Canada's, would I be fair to say, leading open data organization. I have to be careful, I'm on the board, so I try not to, you know, I gotta check myself uh, to make sure that I'm not biased. I'm not biased in your framework, but I think it is fair to say, it is the only one, that's one. So it's kind of this national <laughs> open data organization. So by, by virtue of being the only one, it's the number one, right? Um, so there it is. And we had a team of researchers that were helping us, particularly also the Public Policy Interest Clinic over at Ottawa U. They're a very interesting legal team that was helping us try to develop some knowledge with regards to what an open smart city is. Some research assistance, which is great. It's always good to get money to pay students to help you out. Um, and also, we partnered with the City of Edmonton, the City of Guelph, the City of Montreal, and the City of Ottawa, where we did some case studies. And then we also did a deep dive into the Ontario Smart Grid to try and understand a multi-jurisdictional kind of context. So it was a, a very exciting one-year project. We did a lot of stuff. There you go. There's the stuff. <laughs> Let me give you the context in Canada. And you can go find that stuff. It's all open access. It's all under a Creative Commons license. So you can go use all the stuff as you like. The context. It was very timely to be doing this kind of work. And it was particularly timely because in the Smart Cities Challenge was launched. 
We started the work before the launch, but we knew that this was coming. For those of you who don't live in Ottawa, it's hard to not know stuff is coming. If you live in Ottawa and you're connected a little bit to, to politicians, you, you can't even go to a coffee shop and not hear stuff being talked about. So basically, you know, you wind up knowing the programs that are coming. So we knew that it was coming. It was launched in November. Uh, it was a very exciting launch because the federal government is not supposed to be involved in city politics. But somehow, all of a sudden, it's bypassing the province with a program to support, in a way, developing new, innovative, and interesting technologies in cities. So it's not getting involved in city politics, but it's funding city infrastructure through this route of funding envelope that's coming from the federal government. So that's very interesting. Now, it might also be because the provinces and territories are broke, and it might be a way to actually get some money and to stimulate some innovation. So I haven't gone to look at the intentions, but I would imagine that those intentions are far away. 200 plus cities applied, which was very, very, cities and communities, because it's not always cities, sometimes in uh, Aboriginal reserves were also able to apply or smaller communities that, that weren't officially incorporated as a city were ever able to apply. And what was interesting for us is we were able to influence um, the call for tender to at least ensure that there was public engagement involved in the development of the plans. So if you were going to submit a proposal to infrastructure, you had to consult with your community and you had to have community input. Now, you know, what kind of community input and how good was the community input? Well, that wasn't all detailed. Nonetheless, it was one of the first times where I said, no, you're going to have to do that. And there had to be something about openness in your plan. So that's very helpful when you can actually influence a call for tender. Because the tenders follow the money. And if you can have that kind of language in a tender, you can actually influence what's going to happen on the ground. So we were very excited that we were able to do that. 20 communities have been shortlisted. And those communities will be putting up their plans uh, and making their final submissions within the next few months. And we'll find out who's going to get who is the big five and what the big, you know, where, where the $50 million from the federal government is going to go. But what's great with this program from Infrastructure Canada is you can go onto their website. You can go and take a look at all the 200 plus communities that have submitted. You can take a look at what they did submit. They have a spreadsheet with all of the information and all of the contact information. So it's very exciting. And then, of course, the shortlisted communities, you can get a lot more information about them. So it's well, for any of you who are working on the Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto, I recommend you go peruse some of this information because you might gain some new insight that can help you with the advocacy work that you're doing on the ground. But voila, we have Sidewalk Labs and we have the K-Side project in Waterfront Toronto. And this is El Dorado for Alphabet Inc. or Google. And it's El Dorado because it might be the first ground up smart city in North America. There are ground up smart city projects. Notice I didn't call it an open smart city. There are ground up smart city projects in Dubai, they're in Korea, there's a hundred planned for India, there's you know some stuff going on that's thought of in Singapore and many other countries. Philippines, oddly, also right beside Smoky Mountain in a very weird way. Uh, so a garbage dump where people live in a garbage dump in a smart city right beside it, and I promise you the communities will be very, very separate in who gets access to that smart city. Nonetheless, I digress. Here we have this model here in the city of Toronto, and it's been very contentious. Many, many reasons for it being contentious, but I would, I would dare say that there was an underestimation as to how engaged and how smart people in Toronto are how technologically savvy people are and how critical people are of this kind of development project. But also, there wasn't a very good governance model. And there still is no governance model. And there's very little trust of a large American company coming to occupy a large territory of land and taking data back into its coffers in the United States. There's all kinds of issues related to sidewalk labs. On one side, it's very exciting and, and could be really, really interesting for us, but clearly, as we've seen, we're not entirely convinced at the particular business model that they have on the ground right now. So that was the context within which 
we were developing and doing our research. It was a very opportune time and it was a very rich time because we could build on a lot of the work that was going on. How did we do it? Well, I spoke about the assemblage earlier. So what did we do? How did the assemblage inform our research? Well, we first spent some time looking at the documents, everything from the urban plans, the readiness strategies, the IT subcommittee minutes at council, all these really dry, so dry, <laughs> documents, but are, that are full and are rich with knowledge and information that will tell you about what is going on in the city and what's going on with the plan and who's making decisions and, and who's voting on what. But also, we got to see what their strategies are, we got to look at their urban plans and so on. Then we interviewed uh, the key professionals in those different cities to find out what they were up to and to talk about their strategies. So we developed some semi-structured questions. And then uh, we transcribed that and then we gave that information back to those who we spoke with to see if we got it right or if we missed anything. And generally we were right, they didn't change anything substantively and in fact most times they gave us more stuff because they were really interested in the work that we were doing. But we also looked at visions and strategies and open data and business models and procurement. That's a very, very interesting place. Somebody's got to buy these things, right? So where's the contract? Where's the call for tender? And what is it that you are buying? And luckily, uh, you know, we have some open government people here. Um, proactive disclosure is useful to us because we can find out who got the contracts for what and we can go read that information. And the challenges and benefits. What was going on in these different cities who were developing smart city strategies? But also, to understand the context, we also went and looked at vendors and think tanks because there's this really rich ecosystem of consulting firms that are in this space. There's a really rich ecosystem of think tanks in this space. They become advisors to government, but they're also advocating on behalf of vendors. So there are kind of, you know, it's very difficult for municipal government to be able to do research. They don't always have the resources to do research. They can't pay for research. So they often go to consulting firms to get research. And those consulting firms are often tied with, so think of Accenture, for instance, is a big consulting firm. Frost and Sullivan, for instance, is another. There are many, many big consulting firms involved in this space. There are alliances and associations, and they're very interesting. So if scholars, for instance, and you and I, I won't speak for you, but I can speak at least for myself, I'm not loaded, so I can't pay a $5,000 entrance fee to go to Shanghai to hang out with a bunch of municipal officials to find out what's going on with smart cities or the internet of things. Yet, many public officials are flown by the alliances to these very fantastic conferences and they're given keynote positions. Um, and it's a very exclusive space where you get to meet vendors and you get to meet consulting firms and you get to make decisions and to make new relationships. It's a closed off space that I would argue scholars should start looking at this space because this is where a lot of technological decisions get made. Standards organizations, who are the civil society actors, procurement officers, guidebooks, playbooks, practices, readiness guides, indicators, and, and various cities, what's going on around the world. So we spent a lot of time looking at a whole bunch of different kind of literature that gave us a picture of what is going on. So what did we see? Well, in the city of uh, Edmonton, they have a smart city strategy. You can go read this and you can go take a look at what they have in terms of resiliency and workability. This is what's driving their vision and their mission and their plan. But what was very interesting, and, it, and it's a wonderful plan, and they do, they have a great analytics team. They keep winning open data prizes because the city of Edmonton is a really innovative city in that light. But what they didn't have is they didn't have any place for citizen or resident input uh, in their plan. So people will receive this smart city, but they will, they will just be, they won't have any kind of agency in terms of directing what it's going to look like and what it's going to shape and whether it is that is what they want with it. I'm just letting you know that they do uh, have surveys because I participate in the city of Edmonton surveys and that they do seem to incorporate that into some of their city <coughs> They do, but not for this. Okay. Okay. So yes, they do, but that is that a public consultation? Is a survey a public consultation, or is it answering a questionnaire? But we'll get back oh. to that in the Q and A. Okay. Right. So keep keep that one uh, as a question. So in terms of the city of Guelph, they don't really have yet a smart city strategic plan. Guelph is very interesting. It's a small community. Most of you know where Guelph is, right? 
Very close to here. Okay, good. All people in Ottawa don't always know wealth, <laughs> but I imagine people around here know where wealth is. It's really interesting. Um, they have a very different perspective. There's a lot of people who've chosen to live in Guelph because for lifestyle issues or because it's close to Toronto. Uh, a lot of really interesting citizens with great expertise in Toronto who are involved tangentially in this plan. It's a much more of an environmental plan. But notice there's a consulting firm here, Prior and Fire, who helps them develop their IT strategy. Pricewater Cooper, for instance, who brought us Phoenix. Live in Ottawa, you know Phoenix. Um, uh, you know what I mean. So big consulting firms are involved in a lot of technological decisions, but they're they have another uh, idea, and for them it's about technology streamlining the processes of government. So it's very much a, an operational kind of project. The city of Ottawa just released this. Uh, they did they did not get shortlisted for the Smart City Challenge, unfortunately. But they're really very much situating it in the smart economy and an innovative government. And if there's not much of a sustainability plan or what's going to be good for the public citizens kind of plan, it's very much an operational way of thinking about their plan. Whereas in the city of Montreal, they have a very, come on up here, guys. Don't be shy. Why not? You're all right. You're good. All right. Um, um, their plan in. in uh, activities going on in the city of Montreal. People really care about these things. And so there was a lot of public consultation. People got to vote on projects and 70 projects that citizens voted on, citizens and residents voted on, were shortlisted and are starting to be part of their plan. Now it's very interesting that some of the people that are in behind the scenes here were the early people in open data. So they were early people doing advocacy on open data who eventually got hired, who were also early people who were working with uh, community wireless and got hired for the city and bring that kind of ethos with them in the city. Arguably, that ethos is also existing more broadly in the city of Montreal. So it has a very different kind of connection. And then we also looked at the smart grid and we found out about the really complex process of delivering electricity to people in Canada. And in fact, the smart grid is very interesting because you realize that cities aren't responsible. It's local distribution networks that deliver electricity. It is not the city government that delivers electricity. So any smart city project that says they're going to deliver electricity to you, there's something wrong because the city is not responsible for delivering electricity to you in Ontario. Other provinces is different, but Ontario is very, very different. Uh, in that particular kind of context. So we looked at their data programs and their sensors and their smart meters to try and understand them a bit more. But we also went and examined a lot of really fantastic um, best practices globally. This project here, and I'm bugging them every couple of weeks in the province of Quebec, they developed La Ville Intelligente au Service du Bien Commun. So the smart city in the, in, for the benefit of the public good and ethical guidelines to do so. It's the only report I've seen completely dedicated to that particular activity. Uh, it's a fantastic report. It's just unfortunately not available in English. So I'm hoping that they're going to translate this report. Uh, and, and I know some of the research that worked on this, and it's fantastic. So clearly, we're already starting to see these ethical guidelines. And this is from the province of Quebec. And the province of Quebec is saying to their cities, you have to read this and you have to take this into consideration when you're thinking about your smart city plans because we want our smart city plans to be ethical, to have good values and good principles and to be in the public good. And you need to consider some of the questions that are in here. But we also see the European Union General Data Protection Regulation, which we don't have here, we have PIPEDA, but EU GDPR provides some rights and responsibilities on behalf of vendors that is changing the dialogue on the ground and we also have this work that comes out of the Programmable City Project in Ireland, and that's the work of Rob Kitchen. And Rob Kitchen is talking about getting smarter about smart cities, improving data privacy and data security. And it's also a very excellent report. And he's saying that we always have to have the private sector, the city, and residents, citizens, and NGOs at the table discussing these issues. It can't be left to vendors and the public sector alone. We need all to be working together because there's no way that you can do a smart city without the private sector. Let's just forget that. But it doesn't mean that the private sector can't work in the public good. And it doesn't mean we can't decide what we decide to buy in our cities in a way that's going to benefit citizens and residents of the cities. So what did we discover? Well, after doing all of that, we discovered that you could have a smart city plan or precision agriculture 
Is that something else that I'm interested in? Or Internet of Things kind of plan? It might be connected to a digital strategy in a city or in a province, but it doesn't have to be. You can have a smart city plan that's not open. And in fact, what we saw is most smart cities are not open. They don't have open data. They don't have open source. They don't have open firmware. They don't have uh, necessarily open government related to them because open government is policy, whereas IT and operations is over here. And since IT and operations thinks of themselves as operations, they don't necessarily have to operate within the constructs of open government. And the data don't have to be opened, and it's generally they don't spend time with open science because at a municipal level there's very little science. There is science or the applied science, but very little scientific research gets done. And there's very little open source, if any, and almost no open platforms. So that is what we saw. So here we are, 2019, and we've done all this great openness work for the last 50 years in a very serious way, and we're back at ground zero in many respects when it comes to smart cities. We, it's almost as if we have to start the whole process of openness all over again and trying to map on openness into this space. And that's precisely what we did with the Open Smart Cities project. We said, how do we start taking all of these different entities that are operating in different parts of our institutions, how do we bring them together under one umbrella, if you will, and how do we start mapping what we already know because we already know this stuff. We know about open government, we know about open data, et cetera, et cetera. So why aren't we applying these principles? And why don't we expect these principles to be mapped onto our smart cities? We also learned that they're new, but citizens and residents don't know what's going on. In Toronto, you have a particular situation, but I can promise you, most parts of the country, people don't know what these things are. Um, there's it tends to have an ethos of, oh, we've got all this technology, let's look for some problems. As opposed to, so that's a very technologically solutionist approach to resolving problems, as opposed to saying, we have these issues in our cities, how should we resolve them, and can technology help? If can, any kind of technology can help, great. If it's a technique or a different you know, community development plan, then that should also be considered. Right? So that's something that we find to see a lot of technological solutionism. That there tends to be this idea that, oh, we're going to have so much data, we're going to get so much better, we're going to be so much smarter, our cities are going to be so much better informed, it's going to be great. Because that tends to be the discourse. I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating here because I'm chatting and, and so on. But that is, if you read the documents and you read the discourse, that is generally what you will find. And as we know, for anybody doing critical data studies and looking at big data, more data doesn't mean better governance. More open data doesn't necessarily mean better governance either. There's very little ethical considerations that, that are overarching these kinds of projects and these entities. It's, and we would say there is a deep need for technological citizenship. This is what we don't see enough of. Toronto's particular at this time, but the rest of the country is not, is not having their Toronto moment, luckily, because they don't have the sidewalk labs on their coasts of the, of the Great Lake. Right? Um, and it's an innovate, there's an innovation bias. It's efficient, it's progress. Why wouldn't we have it? Why wouldn't you want to be smart? You want to be dumb? Right? So it's interesting that the smart city has also got that label. It's got the smart city label. We also see a whole bunch of governance issues that haven't been addressed. Surveillance, mission creep, ownership and procurement. Who's going to repair? How do you upgrade your city? Right, like think we tried to upgrade a computer today, an old <laughs> Dell here. We had some issues, right? So imagine five years from now, you've got all this great stuff. You have to upgrade everything. You have to upgrade the software, the platform, and you have to replace the things. All the sensors have to be replaced. So think about that. How, how do you upgrade your city? Will you own the platform or will the, will the private sector own the platform, but you're stuck with the sensors and means you have to keep every five years replace 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 sensors, and that's not an exaggeration. You think every intersection has a sensor in the city of Toronto. How many hundreds of thousands of intersections do you have in the city of Toronto? And that's just intersections, let alone everything else. Also, reuse and unintended purposes, sustainability and maintenance. So nobody talks about maintenance, but you have to maintain these things. <laughs> and then what about interoperability? So we, all, so we know that there are all of these kinds of issues and they're very 
uh, rarely discussed more broadly. So what we had to do is we had to go back. We said, okay, we know this context, we know these scenarios, we've looked at the literature, we've talked to the cities, we've come up with some case studies, we've looked at some best practices. Then we said, well, how are we going to do with this? We found many, many examples around the world that we think are really, really interesting, but how do we structure that and how do we organize that in a way that can be helpful for public officials to be able to take this work and do something with it? Sure, I could go write some fantastic papers that maybe 10, 20, 30 of my colleagues will read and, you know, that I'll force students to read. So, you know, we get to do that and so maybe we'll get some of that going on. But really, it doesn't mean that we're going to influence the practices on the ground. We need to do both of those things. And so we wrote it in such a way that any public official could take this document, run with it, and start applying some of the principles. So what is first? But first we had to do this really boring activity of defining what a city is. Well, it's not so easy in Canada. You know, there's up north, Nunavut, and here we go out east, and some more out east, and we start getting into uh, more out east, and we start getting into Montreal, and we start looking at Ottawa. Look at you guys over here. I almost went to the CN Tower today, just because I've never been. I've never been up there. Have you been up there? No, come on. Oh, good for you. You've been up there. Good. Uh, if we start looking at, we start going west. We start going to the prairies. I mean, Canadian cities, look at that. Right? That's a Canadian city. Are really, really diverse and interesting. So what is a city? So we went to the basics. So this is the worst definition in the world, but the best definition for this project. Okay? So you'll see why. You'll see why it's the best and the worst. First of all, and also, there's thousands of years of research on cities. So, you know, we're like scratching the surface of research on this. Urbanism and, and, and you know, historical research on cities is very old. So we're just at the very, very top of this discussion. But we said, to simplify, it's a complex, dynamic, sociobiological system. So far, so good, right? It's social, it's biological. You and I and stuff and society. Okay. It has a territory. Because it has a jurisdiction, right? It's incorporated, it has a jurisdiction. It's not supposed to do stuff beside it, beyond its borders. It does, and it influences stuff beyond its borders. But at the end of the day, it has a very fixed territory. It's a human settlement. It's where we live. Sociobiological, but it's also a settlement of where we live within that jurisdictional territory. And it's governed by public officials who manage the gray, so all the built stuff, the blue, all the water stuff, and the green environment, so all the trees and plants and parks and all that other kind of stuff, that's within their jurisdictional responsibility. So you can see it's the worst definition, but it's also the best definition in the context of thinking of what is a city in the context of a smart city and what would be the layers of responsibility that are related to this. And then we said, well, what's a smart city? No politicians. No, they're in there. They're in there. The people, the sociobiological. But you're right. And it's not explicit. It's not overt. But you're, you're absolutely right. And smart cities are called lots of things. Network cities, safe cities, sensing cities, connective cities, innovative cities. The original one from IBM was sustainable cities, surveillance cities, etc. Sentient cities, right? The idea that you can you know, aesthetically breathe and, and sense the cities for all the data feeds that come. That would be our MIT technological instrumentalist crew, you know, generally, or the social physicists who generally think of cities that way. Very exciting, but also troubling, but very interesting, right? Very interesting to think of a city. Could you, could you understand the pulse of a city through its data, for example? Often we see this metaphor. This is one of the most common metaphors that you can, you can manage your city from your iPhone. I don't know that I would want to, uh, you can, you know, people manage their houses from their iPhones, but it's the idea that it should be so simple that you should be able to manage an entire city through the palm of your hand uh, and an iPhone to be able to organize it. But really, in many respects, it's about retrofitting a city, an, pre, an existing city, except for K-side is at the ground up, but generally it's about existing cities and retrofitting those cities with all kinds of sensors and devices to bring us smart care, smart society, and smart homes, and smart buildings, and smart energy, and smart retail, and smart working. So all the things that we do every day that we don't feel so smart doing, if we get a smart city, we'll be smart. 
you know, in some ways according to these particular kinds of models. And you'll always see this, you'll, this kind of language when you start, when you start looking up the reports, you'll see it all over the place. But a smart city, in many ways, if we think of uh, technological urbanism, is technologically instrumented and networked, right? It's, that's a key fundamental component of a smart city with systems that are interlinked and integrated where vast troves of big data are being generated by sensors and administrative processes, because you know you fill out a form for your license that's generating data as well, used to manage and control urban life in real time. Because the idea with a lot of the sensors is the production of real time data so that you can get up to the second information about transit and transportation or your fleet or your energy consumption or your water consumption and all of those things. So that's generally, like at its most essentialist type of definition is this one of a smart city. It's also where administrators and elected officials, there's the politicians, invest in smart city technologies and data analytical systems to inform how to innovatively, economically, efficiently, and objectively run and manage the city. Now this language here is a real simplification but it's also an extraction of the language that we saw in almost all the reports. You'll almost always see innovative. You'll almost always see, you know, it'll be more economical, although I've never seen the economic models. It'll always be more efficient, so you'll be more efficient if you have all those things. And it'll be more objective, because politicians won't be making decisions, the machines will be making decisions, or the devices will be helping make the decisions. You know, and the question that I often have is, well, if your city's so smart, do you still need politicians and do you still have a mayor? <laughs> it's interesting, right? Could IBM be your new mayor? Could Sidewalk Labs be the mayor of Kayside, for instance, right? In, in a way, if they're going to be managing all of the data of a particular space and making efficient and innovative and objective and economically sound and sustainable decisions, why would we need other governing structures? And that's, you know, that's not crazy talk. On my part, that is some of the discourse that you will see in some of the reports as well. And the focus is most often to quantify and manage infrastructure, mobility, business, and government services. So in some ways, if it intersects with the digital strategy in some way, that is what you will see. So that is what a smart city is in its absolute most essentialist kind of definition. A smart city on the other hand, or open smart city, is what we're really here to talk about, is this, at a very high level, right? This is where we start. And this language from this comes from the myriad of best practices report and the case studies that we've seen internationally. It's where residents, and you notice we say residents and not citizens, right? Because citizens have a right to the city just like citizens do. You don't have to have that official citizenship document to say that you have a right. So we say residents. Civil society, academics in the private sector collaborate with public officials to mobilize data and technologies when warranted, when you need it. It's not just let's put out technology and find a problem, but where you need it, when it's required, in an ethical, in an accountable, in a transparent, so there's our open government friends there, so it's open an open data accountable and transparent way to govern the city as a fair, as a viable, and as a livable commons. Because in a way, this is what we've got. This is where we live. This is our habitat. This is where we reside. This is our territory. And to balance economic development, because why would we not have business? We need business. Economic development, social progress, as well as environmental responsibility. So any, anybody here ever look at the Britland reports, the sustainable development reports from uh, the UN in 1990s, like the big Brazil meetings in Rio in South Africa? That's that language. That's precisely that language. Because what we have seen is that it seems that we, be, we are forgetting some of the core principles that we found in other places that have already talked about these things in other contexts. So we decided to bring that language back in, but it's also language that we saw in many of the good practices. Okay, how do you do something like that? How do you even think of something like that? Well, 
we decided to split it into some big themes. And we split it into big themes in, based on the kind of information that we found. And we, we developed some loosely developed categories to organize that information. So governance, engagement, data and technology, data governance, something very specific, and effective and values-based types of smart cities. So theme one, we suggest that governance in a smart city, in an open smart city, is ethical, accountable, and transparent. And that these principles apply to the governance of the social and technical platforms, which include data, algorithms, skills, so the knowledge and the skills that people have, infrastructure, and knowledge. What did we find? Well, we found that the UN Habitat talks about that. We found that the Open Government Partner Partnership is related to that, that the Open Data Charter helps us with that, that this ethical report helps us with actually doing that from the province of Quebec. This organization here, Electronics Watch, is about purchasing electronics where there's not the use of slave labor, for instance. And in Spain, uh, Barcelona, for instance, participates in that particular project. So if we're going to buy billions, at least millions in the city of Toronto, let's at least not buy from slave labor. That's a principle that could be adopted in the city. Uh, metering, smart metering, uh, interesting uh, transparent government principles that go in a smart city, uh, a city that networks and some reports on how to work with people and how to govern that way. New York City has a fantastic playbook that brings people together to talk about these issues and, and to learn about technology and to apply technologies in daycares and in other places. Uh, Decision-making processes online, even, you know, Je Fais Montréal, which is the organization of a lot of civic tech organizations and a lot of venture capital organizations that are part of growing a thriving and interesting and engaged and ethical community of developers in the city. Um, open contracting standards, which should be applied in an open smart city context, and a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on in the city of Montreal. So in other words, we're not saying this stuff in a vacuum. We didn't just make things up and hope um, that it could happen. We actually looked at real examples of real projects all over the world where some of these principles are already at play. And we're suggesting that if we want an open smart city, and if we want the open smart city that we want, we might want to go and take a look at some of these examples and some of the governance strategies that these other places have developed. And we organized them, you know, that's just a sample. If you go to the report, you'll get a whole bunch of other stuff. But we organized it in these particular kinds of categories. And you can go find in that report a number of projects globally that are talking about those things. Theme two, an open smart city is participatory, it's collaborative, and it's responsive. It's a city where government, civil society, the private sector, the media, academia, and residents meaningfully, so beyond the survey, right? So meaningfully participate in the governance of the city and have shared rights and responsibilities, right? Our charter gives us rights, but it doesn't talk about responsibilities. Responsibilities is often missing. So you know, what does it mean to be a responsible technological citizen in the context of an open smart city context, for instance? This entails a culture of trust, critical thinking, Fair and just, inclusive and informed approaches. Again, not far away from the Open Government Partnership, not far away from public engagement principles that we've seen in many, many other areas, as well as from the environmental movement. So what do we see? Well, we have participatory types of projects in the IAP too. We have the Open Government Partnership, Open Data Standards Directory, the Programmable City, Connect Chicago is doing it, Open 311. This one's very interesting for you guys who are looking at AI, fair and accountable uh, machine learning. Uh, for instance, uh, Tech Reset Canada, which you have here, and a number of organizations, Code for Canada, Civic Accelerator Programs. Uh, this one here is very interesting. This is one that's thinking about accessibility. Because in, in all the ways that a, a smart city was called, there wasn't one that was called the accessible smart city. There was none of that. And rarely is accessibility ever discussed. And how can your city be smart if it's not accessible, for example? Those are the kinds of questions related to smartness that we need to be asking. And this organization here is about thinking of technology to make a city more accessible. Uh, technology and gender, 
and a number of other types of issues are related to that particular theme. And we have them organized under these different types of categories, from fair and just, and critical thinking, inclusive and informed. And this one's very important. This means that you can go to a meeting, and you can ask hard questions, and you won't be shut down for doing so. And that you can argue, and that you can deliberate, and that we should have the space to be able to bring controversial topics to the table and not be shut out. That is what democratic deliberation is. And that's, this is one that is fearful. Public servants are very fearful of this one. Right? People will shut down this kind of uh, deliberative type of discussion, but we really should have adversarial points of views, and almost all of we do, so that we can actually be informed with what we do, and maybe think of some of the unintended consequences, or at least have them on the table, and to consider them and to think about them. In theme three, an open smart city uses data and technologies that are fit for purpose. So a lamppost that is collecting data for traffic should not become a surveillance lamppost with cameras that are monitoring people walking around, for example. So it's fit for a specific purpose, and it doesn't get to be used for another purpose, such as surveillance. That it can be repaired and queried, so that whatever we buy, we have a right to repair those things. We don't just rely on the vendor to repair stuff for us, that we actually have the right to repair what it is that we purchase. That we can at least, maybe as citizens, and residents, we don't all get access to the source code for security reasons, for example, might be a good reason not to, but at least whoever procures should have a right to take a look under the hood of whatever it is that they buy to see if it's working, to manage it, and to be able to know it. That it adhere to some kind of open standards, that they be interoperable, durable, secure. Cyber security is a fundamental issue when it comes to open smart cities and when it comes to any of these particular kinds of devices. And wherever possible, and this was the most contentious one, I was very surprised, locally procured, this idea that you might want to grow your own technology sector. Crazy talk. Imagine Canada not always buying from big multinational corporations based in the United States. Quebec has no problem doing that. They have no problem growing their own technology and open source community and device manufacturing communities. Why isn't the, the rock, as Quebec calls it, the rest of Canada, why isn't the rest of Canada also thinking about that? So this was the one I was very surprised. Of all the things we said, this was the one that people you know, were like, oh, you're becoming a nationalist. No. We're suggesting that maybe we buy from and help support our own companies. And that we don't always have to buy big. Maybe we buy small and grow. That's another interesting idea as well. And scalable, so that if you do buy small, that at least you start thinking of growing the technology and the devices. So about five minutes. Um, that data and technology are used and acquired in such a way to reduce harm and bias, and certainly probably with your AI conversations this, this came up, to increase sustainability. Because if we think about it, if we're putting in millions of devices in our environment, how is that sustainable? It means we're buying millions of things. And millions of things that include semi-precious metals that are mined from places like the Congo. How is that sustainable? Particularly since none of those things are renewable resources. So do they have a five-year shelf life? Do they have a 10-year shelf life? What is the shelf life of these things that we're going to put in our environments where, I know it's a little tropical here in Toronto, but in Ottawa, it's like an 80-degree temperature range from minus 40 to plus 40. So how do these devices survive in those kinds of conditions? and enhance flexibility, that we defer when warranted to automated decision-making. AI is okay, right? Why wouldn't you use artificial intelligence to manage your traffic system? Right? That makes a lot of sense, but you don't do it all the time. And you design these systems so that they're legible. You can, you can read them. You can go back and take a look at what was in the algorithms, that they're responsive, that you can change them and tweak them as required in your city, and that they're adapted and accountable. And we looked at a whole bunch of different practices. Open source procurement toolkit in England, for instance. Uh, legal procurement toolkits, different labs that are involved in this kind of work. Different regulation that's part of this. So we found a number of activities that were part of doing that kind of work. Theme four, and then we have one more theme, and then we're done. And then you're, you're free. You don't have to listen to me anymore. 
So theme four, in an open smart city, data management. So the full production cycle of the management of data is the norm. That's normal. Right now, it's not the norm. And custody and control over data is known. Right now, with in, con in the context of sidewalk labs, this is the big one. Who has custody of the data? Who controls the data? Right now, that's nobody really knows, and that wasn't negotiated, and that wasn't discussed at the outset. By smart technologies, it's held and exercised in the public interest. So how do you define the public interest in that particular context? That data governance includes sovereignty in the context of maybe localization, that has to be a conversation, question mark, but also sovereignty of myself over what I, what I want and do not want collected about myself. And also, what does it mean when data about an entire territory and a group of people within a territory is known and owned by a jurisdiction beyond its borders? And that's a different sovereignty and national kind of conversation that I think it's time we have. Residency, open by default, security, privacy, and that grants people authority over their personal data, that you have the right to ask questions about your data. And again, globally, we saw all kinds of fantastic examples where those conversations are at play. Uh, and they don't necessarily intersect with all communities, but we've seen a lot of great examples of, about these. And then finally, and for me, in, in some respects, uh, from someone who worked in social planning councils and did community-based research on topics related to homelessness, not a very technologically sexy type of environment, we would say that in an open smart city, you need to recognize that data and technology are not always the solution to most social and complex issues. Um, and that you can't just fix these issues with technology and with data. And that these problems actually require long-term, innovative, social, organizational, economic, and political processes. So sometimes it's a 20-year plan for these issues, right? So the homelessness plan for the city of Toronto and Ottawa is a 10-year plan, and then you revisit the plan in 10 years. So sometimes, to be smart, you need to not use technology, but you need to look at really interesting processes. And we can say that with food security, we can say that with homelessness, and we can say that with housing for sure in our cities. And so finally, how does this become a reality? So we've already talked about how we've, you know, the Infrastructure Canada was influenced by the ideas of the Open Smart City, how we've seen little pockets of reality globally of how Open Smart Cities practices and principles and governance or so on have already been applied. But then how do we help cities actually think of this and this is not easy, right? Because it's a very large systemic change and we're not really great at thinking systemically. And what's happening now is the open smart city definition is being translated into performance measures and metrics. And it's also being translated into an assessment tool. And it's also being translated into a readiness guide where you can actually go through this. So we're taking the principles, we're taking the open smart city definition, we're looking at automated processes, standards, data, governance, and infrastructure, and we're starting to develop high-level strategies, visions, missions, roadmaps, goals, and objectives, implementation plans, and operational plans to govern many of the application areas of these smart cities. And in fact, Open North is now participating and engaged in doing that kind of activity with Evergreen, and we hope to see that kind of work coming out within the next couple of weeks. So all that to say that there's still a lot of work to be done, and I have some questions for the ethicists in the room. It's like, how do we have an ethical framework for an entire city? But I don't know if that's, we want to discuss that now, or we should probably open it to question and answer. And thanks very much, everybody. For coming.